In a world where children are eating Tide Pods and snorting Ajax, two men have come from the future to bitch slap hipsters back to reality and talk about some important shit. You're listening to The Everyday Sniper. How was that for a sound check? Nice. Mike and Frank, man, we're here in the show. Mike from Mile High Shooting, Frank from Sniper's Hide. And today we wanted to do a gun-heavy episode for you guys. So we do have uh, we do have a lot of ground to cover, and we're gonna give you we're gonna try to give you another 50 minute episode for your commute. And uh, jumping right into it, we're gonna talk about rifle setup. We're gonna talk about optics. We're gonna talk about mounting those optics, um, and a few questions that we had from our Facebook page, the Everyday Sniper. Yes, definitely. Uh, and I'm dressed like a hipster today. I'm kind of feeling it with the hat and the whole thing. I got my Converse on. I got my Pipe Hitters Union hat on. I'm ready to represent. Dude, I'm in my freaking slippers, man. Moccasins. Moccasins. Yeah, slippers. So jumping right into rifle setup, I see some really hysterical stuff in regards to rifle setup. And so we want to just kind of go through some different things that uh, people look at. There's, you know, length of pull issues. There's cheek rest issues. There's scope height issues. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, all these different things go into aligning your body behind the rifle. Uh, one of the things to get right into it I, I want to discuss is getting straight and square behind the rifle. A lot of guys get off on an angle and what will happen is they'll come to a class. And so they're doing the 15 degree angle because they saw a picture on the internet. And so they're off on that angle to the side. And if, if you have any questions about that, stand behind somebody who's getting behind a rifle and you're going to see that they're, the angle that they're sitting at looks like a banana. Well, it was meant for sling shooting. I'll give you the history and how this worked. You take your, your, your support hand, you're going to hold the front of the rifle up with a sling. Well, you need that forearm to be straight in, in under the rifle. In order to get that under the rifle, you have to turn your body. And then the rear elbow lines up with the front along that rifle. You can't do it straight. I mean, you can, it's really uncomfortable, but that's one of the things that people don't realize is that 15 degree angle was solely for sling shooting. And here we're talking bipods and straight. So when you straighten someone out into a class, they have to move almost their entire rifle setup because their scope now is too close to them. They have to move it away or actually back because when they're, when they're sideways, and they're crouched up on the rifle like that, they're giving it a lot of love is what we call it. What'll happen is that they'll, they'll have their head closer to the scope. So now when they go straight and square, their cheek is now back and their scope will have to come back. When we start talking a little bit more about the adjustment of chassis and rifles, um, I'm gonna bring that back up when we talk about um, shooting off barricades versus laying down behind yes. the gun because that's going to that's going to change your head position too right your head position is what changes so what i like are reference points so mm -hmm. reference point when i get behind a gun i'll point the gun at the target i'll stand directly behind the gun and i'll line that buttstock right up on the inside of my right knee okay and then go, drop down to my knees and then move forward into the rifle load the bipod and then drop down onto the rifle. Index, right. I use it as index points. It's steps. It's straight and square behind it, lining the stock up with the inside of the right foot if you're right-handed. Then you go to your knees and index on your knees, and then you go to push-up position. Then for my next thing is rifle comes into the shoulder pocket, and I hold back with the firing hand, 
Then I load the bipod and go through all that. With me, the load comes from, I start off high, off my chest really, mm -hmm. and then I settle in behind the rifle and that is my load. I'm just taking the slack out of the bipod. But that all goes up to setup. I mean, where the scope is positioned, the height, the cheek, the length of pull. And length of pull is measured from the inside of your elbow there into your trigger finger. Now what I like to do, and you can't see it on the video, but I like to put my finger in the actual bent 90 degree position and measure that distance that's right. like this, yeah, man, yeah, right yeah. there. So that's what I'm measuring. We got a little camera going just in case I might throw it up. Um, so we're measuring. And that's measuring your length of pull. Chassis and stuff, stock-wise, what you're buying is adjustability. You're buying the ability to move things on the fly so they're not limited. And we just talked about this a bit with Diane that a fiberglass stock, a lot of them, they're getting more adjustability now. But if you're buying a stock like that, you want to buy a stock with the most adjustability you can get. You don't, if you're going to an aftermarket stock, you want to get one that has as much adjustability in the butt plate and the cheek rest as possible, and then set up the length to pull for you. Now you can get spacer systems and things like that where the chassis that's how they come out of the box. Right, and what I'm using is an Accuracy International AX. It's the, the newer style multi-calibers, the short action version. And where I think they really succeeded on that is the adjustability because I can shoot with multiple people. We can all shoot my gun if we wanted to mm -hmm. because we can adjust the length of pull. We can adjust the comb height. You can also adjust the butt plate into your shoulder if you want. Definitely. So us here in Colorado, we want to shoot year round. Because it's not what you see on the TV all the time where it's just snowing every single day. It's, it'll snow and then two days later all the snow's it's gone perfect. and we it's can go out and again. shoot. Yeah, it's 60. But you're still going to want to wear a heavy coat. Right. So now you have to take that into account as well. So you're going to, whether you're shooting with body armor on, whether you're shooting with a heavy coat or a t-shirt, your length of pull is going to move back and forth as far as your shoulder, cheek, and eye relief is all concerned. Definitely. If you want to look at something like that in adjustability and you want to get a visual, look at a Tub 2000 rifle, Tub rifles, the stocks. He has all the notches and adjustments and all the markings on his stock. So you, you can understand, okay, my stock is in position 8 in the prone. Okay, it goes to a position 7 in the kneeling. It goes to a position 6.5 in the standing or something, you know. He knows where he can move it, and that's what all those notches and things are for. So you can index these things and say, next position for better marksmanship, you want to go and change the stock position, the head position. Because as you rotate off the ground, your head is standing up straighter and moving back on the stock. So you lay down prone, your head goes forward. As you start to move up from uh, kneeling, sitting, to, uh, prone, or standing rather, uh, it's going to then back up. And when you're engaging targets on a lateral plane, you're going from extreme left to extreme right. This is where some people will get confused as well because they'll go back to that 15 degree that we were talking about. Yep. And they'll try to make their adjustments based off of that and get their head back into the same position. Where firing or shooting is all about consistency in what you do. 
So just take the couple extra seconds and move your body back behind the gun so you experience the same type of recoil. You don't come off the target, but you're absorbing that through your body and it's going straight straight through your body and right. at the bottom of your foot. Right down. I mean, you, you're relaxed. All this, the, the, the loading of the bipod, all the stuff that we're talking about when, when we're getting into position in the prone, all that comes from your core and not from your shoulders. You don't want to throw your shoulders into the rifle. It's actually coming from core weight. Uh, and that then moves us into the scope and choosing rings and doing the sight height setups. So where do we put our scope as far as how do we set it up? Number one, we want to be on max power when we're setting that up for us. You got to make sure that, you know, you're turning your magnification all the way up. The more magnification, usually the pickier your eye relief is. And so what happens is when you change position, especially as a tactical shooter, you're lowering your magnification to open up not only the field of view and to steady the shot up a little bit so it's not so uh, highly magnified, but you're also opening up the eye box, that area behind the scope where the eye relief is. So it's more forgiving. So as your head moves that little bit, the scope is adjusting with you. Right. And you want to also take a, a heavy look at adjusting your parallax perfectly. So when you're doing that, you want that reticle to be crystal clear. If it's fuzzy, younger guys with good eyes, will, yeah. they will adjust to that fuzziness and attempt to shoot. Where you have to mm -hmm. work that thing back and forth, back and forth until you find the perfect spot. What I like to do personally is I'll put it up either against the light or I'll put it up in the blue sky and then start adjusting that rear piece on the, eye di uh, on the diopter and make that reticle as crystal clear as possible and then I'll bring it back into the gun. Yeah, and don't watch it while you're doing it. Our brains are hyper complex, man. We're really, really fast and really smart. If you're watching it while you're adjusting, your eyes will focus to it and you won't get a true focus. So what you gotta do is you wanna drop in on the rifle, you wanna look at uh, the reticle through the scope, then you wanna say, okay, it needs to be crisp. Take your head away, make the adjustment, and then look back at it. It should be immediately crispy. If your eyes have to focus to it, or if you have to play with it a little bit, it needs a little bit more adjustment. On your Leopolds and Night Forces with the fine American style uh, eye relief or uh, diopter adjustment, you got to give it a big turn. With the European ones, it's a little goes a long way. With the fast, uh, quick adjust ones. So you're going to adjust that reticle good, then you can adjust the parallax and bring it from infinity back and get your focus and make sure everything looks good. But let's talk ring height because I, I was just telling <laughs> I read the most hysterical thing on um, Facebook yesterday. I was kind of cruising through. Sniper's height is being redone. It's down right now. It'll be up over the weekend. But these guys were talking about ring height. And they, I, I talk about ring height on a daily basis. Yes. I got to get people into the to the right height. And the biggest thing I always hear or run into is I got to get my scope as low as possible, as low as humanly possible. And this is kind of this is going to run into your story, Frank. And then you got guys that have scopes that are really high up. And I'll, mm -hmm. I'll tell you what my height over bore is here in a second. And you guys make the decision if that's too high. And then I'll tell you why it's that high. But go ahead. Tell yeah, us, so tell these guys were debating, and it was a serious debate. There was no argument about it, but they were debating that you want low rings when you're going to use the reticle and hold over, and you want high rings if you're going to dial your elevation. And I was just looking there with Ren and Stimpy eyes, like, you know, blinking and stuff, like, <laughs> blink, blink, you know, and like, what the hell are they talking about? And, and yeah, that's not how it works, man. There There is a number that goes into your ballistic solver because... 
the, the information has to know how high the scope is above the bore, and that's part of your zeroing. But after that, I mean, it doesn't matter. Where it does matter is canting. If you're high and you can't, well, then it becomes a bigger issue. If you're a little lower, canting is not as big a deal, depending on how much you can't. And most of us don't can't as much as... We'll get into this later. This is a big, long discussion. You know, they always say five degree can't. Let me tell you something, dude. Five degrees is huge. Nobody's canting five degrees on purpose. Right. It's usually two or less. And, you know, it's tough for people to see, but that's where the ring height has an effect is in if you're negatively canting the rifle. Once you put that number in, it's no big deal. Now, tell us your ring height. So my ring height is 2.8. And I'm using a Schmidt & Bender 34 mil tube with a 56 mil objective. And 2.8, hate. Uh, that's all I could think of just now. On my rifle, it has to be that way because I have a full-length rail that goes all the way down in that 56 mil objective. If I go much lower, it's going to crash into the rail. It, it's so my ring, my rings are actually 1.55. I use a spur 4002. Okay. So that clips onto my Picatinny rail. My Picatinny rail is 20 mm away. I didn't need to put any mm away into the actual rings themselves because I get plenty of adjustment with my Schmidt. Sure. And. I can actually put some tough covers like ATI or Armament Technology uh, Tenebrex covers on my on the front end of my scope, and it doesn't interfere, it doesn't touch anything. But I also have it at one and a half inches high on the same plane, so that I, if I need to, I can clip on a piece of night vision. And it's going to be the correct height. Night vision is one four four, so one point four four is where you're optimal for night vision, and that's why you see a lot of mounts that way. But just an FYI for like our chassis rifles and things with a flat top AR type things, uh, 2.5 is not uncommon for a sight height. You know, I'm two and three quarter, same Mike's 2.8, I'm two and three quarter, 2.5 is really common for a 34 millimeter tube scope on these chassis rifles. And where we're getting that measurement is if you take a set of calipers and you measure from the center of your bore to the top of your rail, your action rail, and then measure from the top of your action rail to the center of your optic, you'll come, you add those two numbers together, you'll come up with your sight height that you can and plug into. We have a ring system. height calculator on Sniper's Hide, tell you exactly how to do it, but also you could just take your calipers and measure from like the, um, the gas port hole on a Remington 700. There's that hole along in front of the ejection and just measure up to the center of your rings or your, your scope tube there and that's your, that's your height, your bore height. You know, it's right there in the center of your chamber and up to the middle of your scope tubes. Uh, and you could be within an eighth of an inch. You don't have to be. You I was know. just about to say, you get, leave, you're going to have some room for fudge on yes. something. Yes. So just make 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 a mental note that you're, okay, I got to fudge this number just a little bit, but I'm going to plug it in here because when, once you get it into that ballistic software, you have to go out and true it anyways. Right. So don't, don't sweat that sight height, man. Uh, measure it up. Get it going. But with tactical rifles, I, some guy was actually chastising me on um, Sniper's Hide, a YouTube channel, okay. because of my scope heights. He was like giving me, you know, big balls that, you know, I, I don't know what I'm doing because my scopes were sitting so high. Even though, you know, Accuracy International Rifle in a spur mount with a Schmidt and Bender scope, this guy's telling me I don't know what I'm doing because hunting rifles slam them down as low as they can. Um, funny thing is not last year, but I think it was the year before at SHOT Show, I was at Christensen okay. 
and they were doing their tactical rifle but with their hunting style action and the night force 4 to 16 uh just that little thing they sent me a rifle i put it all together i couldn't run the bolt because it hit my hand because their rail was so tiny that's that always it, my biggest fear when i'm putting somebody in a, in a 30 mil tube with like 0.887 high rings mm -hmm. and i'm like you gotta watch out for the back end of that scope because you're gonna smash your thumb into it well i brought i went to night forces booth i grabbed the scope and while mounted up in a in a, in a, a mount and i brought it to christensen and i showed him i'm like look i can't run the bolt dude i got a tiny hand and i remember when we got those two rifles in we had to send did we send yes, them back yeah we sent them back right because i didn't do anything because i couldn't run the bolt and i'm like hey i'm not i'm not doing anything with this and, and you got to fix your rail height and you got to get it up for a tactical rifle because you know here i have a four to sixteen night force attacker and i can't run the bolt and and that's you know that should be money on that rifle absolutely so that's something to look at is clearance and that was with left-handers mm -hmm. left-handers would hit the schmidt and bender uh Illumination. The illumination of. So that was a big one that you have to look at all these little things that can get in the way. Those power throw levers, the illumination knob control, all these things. And you want to make sure you're clearing your bolts so you don't run into a problem. So I've mentioned night force rings. I want to mention spur rings. So spur rings, I actually have a really good spur story. I, I like to tell this story just to make a point of how repeatable these rings are. Okay. So... Myself and Adam, you guys hear this name, Adam Rehor, all the time. Adam Rehor, he's my shooting partner, best friend. Uh, he actually, congratulations to him. He ju they just had their baby this morning. Oh, nice. Yep. Adam, congrats. Yep. And um, so we're shooting the sniper side cut. Mm -hmm. And he was having some problems up and down on the scope. And at the time where you were putting on the sniper side cut, our range was about seven miles, eight miles away. Yes. And we were like, okay, we need to run over to our range and test a few things. So uh, it was muddy, sloppy, dirty, everything. It was totally awesome for three days. <laughs> we put everything together. We threw it in the truck. We drove out to our Fort Morgan range. We got to the Fort Morgan range, pulled the guns out of the truck, and set up the 100-yard target. We took the Schmidt out of the spur, washed the rings, took the leveling wedge that spur provides in every single one of their packages leveled it back up so there's a little notch that's in your spur mount and this leveling wedge goes in and it it uh flattens out the erector housing on the bottom so that it, it levels your right. scope so we kind of we saw the scope ring marks on the actual scope itself so we're like okay this is about where it was we put it back in the scope after or back in the scope mount after we cleaned everything off we torqued it down to its specs with uh with a borka tool and then Adam got behind the gun. He was like, all right, 100 yards, I'm going to shoot at that 308 bullet hole. And we were shooting 243s at the time. Mm -hmm. I'm going to shoot at that 308 bullet hole. Shoots at the 308 bullet hole. Makes the hole just a little bit bigger. I was going to say, he doesn't like, see anything. Yeah, right? <laughs> right? Knowing uh, Adam, it went in the hole. Yeah, it did. And it made the hole just a little bit bigger. And I was like, holy shit, dude. All right, dial for six. So he dials for six, pulls the trigger, impact. I'm like, run it back down to 100. Runs it back down to 100, pulls the trigger, and goes through the same hole again. Goes, so it makes the hole just a little bit bigger. Like, oh, okay, we'll pack your shit up. We're leaving. We're so going we got, Yep, we're going back. So we went back to the cut and finished off. Um, but just being able to do that out in the field without, you know, a, a, a dead level or plumb or anything like that. Yeah. Uh, it was a huge thing to me at the time because I was like, this is my first real experience of, of spur in the field. 
good equipment pays for itself. It does. It's expensive. It carries you. Yes. It, it really, really does. I mean, I travel all over. You talk about that with the AIs because Mike brought up the short action uh, AX and, and I shoot the same one. I took it up to Alaska with me in front of the entire class. And here I am teaching a class. I took the rifle apart, pulled the barrel off, put it all back together. Then I shot a 200-yard group with the students and smoked all of them. You know what I mean? Because what caliber did you? I were you using six five Creed. Six five Creed. Yeah, because I brought it so I can get ammo at three bear up there. So six five Creed, and you know I ended up shooting sort of like a half inch group right in the center where I needed it to be. Nothing was out of whack. It didn't take rounds to settle in because I use good equipment. I torque stuff down. I'm using spurs and Schmitz and things like that, and and it matters. You know, I know it's expensive. But a scope will follow you and rings will follow you. So even if you're in a lower end rifle, if you can afford a little bit better scope and rings, it, it'll, it'll, you'll never regret it. Save up another month and, and get, just get to that next level. Um, with the Accuracy International, myself, I'm, like I said, we were shooting 243s. Um, I still have my 243 barrel. I shoot that. We load for that one. Adams is for sale, isn't it up there? Yeah, I thought, probably. I thought I saw it on the rack. Uh, his old one is. Yes. Yeah, his, uh, his uh, previous year is pre-2014 uh, pre AX okay. is up there. Um, but we're shooting that. And then I'm shooting, now I'm shooting a six Creedmoor. And the gun likes it so much, I'm shooting quarter to half inch groups. So I'm like, I don't need to load for this thing. I'll just use the same lot. Right. And then... When we put on a sniper class with a training detachment, I have a 308 barrel. So the story behind that 308 barrel is just actually kind of funny. One of our customers got this barrel and he was like, man, this barrel doesn't shoot for shit. And he sent it back. Mm -hmm. I was like, okay, cool. Well, let me put it on my gun and see what it does. And I was shooting 168 federal premiums. And first three shots of the day, they were all, I have a picture of it. I'll, I'll show it to anybody. First three shots of the day were all inside of each other and everything was good. The Biggest thing there was I didn't have to re-zero my scope. Yeah. Everything went to the same spot. So now all I have to do when I when I want to shoot 308, I just take my six mil barrel off, I put my 308 barrel on, and I'm confident I don't have to re-zero. It totally. I, I've swapped them up and it, you gotta re-zero a little bit. It's off some. Now, if you have an MC type rifle where you have 338, 300 wind mag, 308. MC or, being multi-caliber any type of thing like that you zero the biggest caliber first and that's your dead zero and then everything's up from there so like you zero the 338 and then you can add a little elevation for the 300 add a little elevation for the 308 and you don't have to go the down and defeat your zero stop where if you zero the 308 and then you want to shoot your 338 odds are you got to go down and go below your zero stop so that's something that you have to uh, think about with these multi-caliber rifles but they're so damn close. I've switched barrels on the line and switched calibers on the line. And I'm usually within an inch to an inch and a half at the most with other calibers and bullets. It just depends. It does. And every now and then you get lucky and you get something that just wants to work. Within the, the 6.5 family, you can switch stuff. Um, I've noticed I can have the 130s and the 136s and things like that using the same dope. I've seen that uh, work out pretty damn well and only be off a very little bit where the target elevation will, will, will absorb it no problem. Reticle selection. Reticles, man. Yeah. Reticles so are how like, many reticles are out there, Frank? 1,637.5. That's an actual statistic you can look up. And most, statistics, most statistics are made up on the spot, about 80% of them. 
Yeah, sixty percent are correct. Yeah. <laughs> but um, so, yes, uh, we've been talking about Schmidt. We have uh, we had a question. Somebody uh, PM'd us on on Facebook, and they brought up the whole Schmidt the, reticle. Why is the cost this the way? The price changes. The price changes. Um, Frank so, can go into a little more detail on that. I want, should, but can, I want to talk about reticles when we get done. With okay, that. I've been shooting Schmidt since about two thousand and one or so. Uh, I've been running Schmidt's for a long, long time, and they had zero stops and single turn reds and all those things back then, with like the four to sixteen. I think the PM two is probably the easiest yeah, zero stop that is like, because out it's there. preset. Now, I I had one of the first five to twenty fives that came in the U.S. I paid twenty three fifty from Tech Pro. And, and it came in through AI because AI used to have uh, Schmidt and Bender OEM scopes. My first AI came with a Schmidt PM2. They called them the Mark II back then because they have a laser coating for the military. There was a military version. It, it's identical. It just said AI on the side. But um, 2350 Well, then as every got popular and you start going Horace, well, Horace adds $400 to the cost. Just to pay that royalty. Just to pay the royalty. They pass that on to you. Right. And so that ups the price to $27.50. Now you start talking these zero stops and locking turrets and government contracts. More tactile clicks. So now the price is $32.50. Then you start seeing more and more units are using them. So now you're at $36 and $3,800 for just the 5 to 25. Now I'm not talking any of the other models, the 45s, the ultra shorts or anything like that. We're talking the 5 to 25. The double turn, single turn. Double turn, single turn, LP, LP, all these configurations. Well, with that scope, Schmidt sort of priced themselves out of the market. And less and less people were using them because they didn't want to pay $3,600 for a scope they used to pay $2,400 for. So now Schmidt said, we're in trouble. We need to fix this. So they re-lowered all the prices across the board for like $500 on average. And they and you know guys were sitting on really old inventory. So they brought those prices down. There's nothing wrong with those scopes. And you're actually making out and getting good deals to pick up those Schmidt and Benders. Because now everybody wants to compare them to the newest, latest, and greatest. Well, what about the Night Force Attacker? What about the Vortex Gen 2 Razor? What about the Collis? What about this? Understand... All those scopes, when they were up and coming, were being built and compared to the 5 to 25. Absolutely. It was the gold standard. Yes. If you went to Vortex and looked at what they were doing when they were making the AMG and all those other things, sitting on the desk right there was a 5 to 25 Schmidt and Bender. Night Force. The whole thing was to beat the 5 to 25 Schmidt and Bender. That was where the beast came in and, and, and the attackers and all that. They changed glass up just because they wanted to match that 5 to 25. So while those scopes may have eclipsed the Schmidt and Bender because of the pricing, they weren't better. They were meant to be on par. So now that you can get that Schmidt cheaper, it's a great deal. And that's oh, what yeah. people want. more competitive. Now. Yes. That's what people wanted to know. Is it worth buying one? Yes. Highly recommend it. You'd be silly if you could afford it not to pick up a Schmidt uh, from these guys at that price. I love Vortex and I use a lot of Vortex equipment and a lot of their glass. And if you're looking at a Schmidt that's $23.95 and you're looking at a Vortex Gen 2 that's $24.99, yeah. you put your money on the Schmidt. Yeah, you're weight-wise, I mean, you're saving up and, and you may have limited options in that price range. The Vortex has the same limited options because they only do their proprietary stuff reticle-wise and things like that. 
So that's what you're looking at. You're looking at costs for the, the R&D, for the locking in you know, turrets, for the uh, horse reticles, and for all that stuff. That's what's going on there. When, so, you, when you go to a, a pro shop and you're looking at scopes, uh, obviously, if you're not here in Colorado, if you're here in Colorado, I'd take you out and we'd do the Coca-Cola challenge with you know five different scopes. But if you're not here in Colorado and you can find a pro shop that is into these high-end optics, you need to take them outside and look at them. Don't look at them inside. You can, they're they, not made they, for they, artificial light. They're, they're made for natural. for natural lighting. Yes. And the coating that is on the glass, that's, that's the next thing. So as you're looking at glass, you can see, you know, put them up side by side. You can see the difference when you go outside. One's going to last you a little bit longer. One's not going to last you longer. You, you may have a scope that's going to be around for 10 years and then you pay a little, you know, a little bit less and you're going to have a scope that's around for five years. My 15 year old Schmitz still look as good as the first day. You look at the outside, they're beat to snot. I mean, down at rifles only, we didn't take care of them at all. The glass is still perfect. And what happens is with lesser scopes, the, the coatings get worn off and get beat up. And that's why they start to get cloudy and they start to not look as great because sun damages the coating and water and different things, you know, so they tell you, what, you know, clean them with acetone and different stuff like that. That all affects the, the coatings and the lesser scopes with, the, with lesser lenses and coatings will deteriorate quicker than the more expensive ones. But reticle-wise, to get back to that really quick, that's fitting the rifle to the shooter. The reticle is your personal choice. Don't go and artificially pick a reticle because you read it on the internet. Go look them up. The schematics are all online. Your first impression matters. It, the easier it is or the reticle that does what you want it to do and, and doesn't appear too busy or doesn't have, you know, open, you know, like a floating dot in the middle, that's what you want to choose a scope by. You know, whether or not you pick a Night Force or a Vortex or a Schmidt and Bender, the deciding factor should be the reticle. I agree with that 100%. For me, when I was picking a scope, I was drawn to the H2CMR. Mm -hmm. That's that is my go-to reticle for my precision rifles on my rifle today, right now. And the reason I like it is because of the type of shooting that I'm doing. I'm doing target shooting. I need to shoot at small stuff, really, really far away, and it's giving me those 0.2 yeah. tenths, so that I can I don't have a whole lot of guesswork. When I was shooting that Valkyrie, what was it last weekend? Mm -hmm. We had we were you using were an MOA, so we you were completely MOA one. screwed up. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> but we were an MOA. When I'm used to shooting mills, just faster for me and the type of shooting I like to do. But it was also a P4 reticle. Yeah. So on that main crosshair, I didn't have my two tenths. So I honestly, I, I felt like I had to do a lot of guesswork. And I see now I have an H2 CMR. I don't like it. I have to take a couple extra seconds to figure out what tick mark I'm on. I like a P4 reticle in the MSR. I use MSRs, P4s, and originally I brought them back into the U.S. 10 years plus ago before Schmidt started making them, uh, you know, an option, the Klein. I went to Schmidt. You guys don't, may not realize this. Schmidt custom built me scopes. I have a, a one to six front focal plane that was built 10 plus years ago. Uh, and it was not even 1800 bucks, and it was a front focal plane, mill mill, flash dot, one to six that they did up for me. Quick question. Who's making mill MOA anymore? Anybody? 
Mm. I think Leopold might still. And some down like low, lower end custom, buys. Custom yeah, thing I think so. It, that is the biggest question I get. Or actually, when I, like, I need you to fulfill this order for me. It has to be mill mill. Well, yeah, I know. I yeah, that's everything. <laughs> well, and, and to go back now, so Klein's, they, they used to have the Klein reticle, which the Klein is the Gen 2 Premier reticle. is really came from Klein with the half mil hash marks. So I had gone through Sniper's Hide and using our buying power and said, if I can get this many scopes, will you return the Klein reticle? And they said, yes. So I have Schmidt scopes that say special build. And they have a Klein reticle in them. Honestly, I haven't seen a Klein reticle in, in some time. I use them. I like Kleins. But I'm a P4 fine and a MSR guy. Uh, but everybody likes those, those two-tick hash marks. And I like the floating dots now. I like the Collis MSRKs and things like that. I like those floating. I, heck, I like SIG's reticle with the floating dot. I think SIG's reticle is really good. With the, with the holdovers for me on the H2CMR, I think it makes it easy for me. And like you were saying, there's a lot of tick marks. Mm -hmm. they break it up with bubbles so with right. your one mil bubble and then your two mil bubble on on down the line it's easier for me to count bubbles than tick marks so if i'm doing a hold over at you know 1200 yards or something like that and i know i need to hold 1.4 yeah. one bubble two clicks pull the trigger right so, so. It, it, again pick a reticle that you like that appeals to you look at the schematics and say how easy would it be for me to operate that reticle I mean, don't just default and say, well, if I'm going to hold over, I have to use the Horus. Guys, we were teaching this stuff. We were the Horus people down at Rifles Only before we, we dumped it. And we had drills specific to the Horus. When we dropped that Horus contract, we were teaching the military with plain P3 everyday mill dot scopes. And we taught people to be every bit as effective with a regular mill dot scope. You can do it. it takes practice. That's all it is. The, the Horus is not a shortcut. It, guys still hold the wrong lines. They still have to count down and, and do all these different things. If you look at it and say, it's busy for me, odds are you're going to struggle with it under pressure. So if you're sitting in front of your computer right now, pull up a Horus Tremor 3 reticle. We'll give you just a moment here. Horus Tremor 3. So looking at a Tremor 3, horror vision. it's intimidating at first when i when i was looking into this reticle i was like man i'm coming from an h2 cmr i don't want anything to do with this busy reticle and i hear this a lot is oh that reticle's too busy it's going to cover up my shot it's going to it's going to do this it's going to do that for the last six months i've been messing with the tremor three and once you actually have it explained to you and again i'm using a six mil and I'm not losing Except any no of my two shots. people explain it the same. <laughs> right? <laughs> if, if you sit down with somebody who, know, who knows this reticle and who has shot it and can give you a little bit of background on it, and, and you can look it up. There's a couple of videos uh, on the Tremor 3. It'll give you an explanation, but it's only scratching the surface. Mm -hmm. Get behind the gun and shoot it. It took me about two I mean, to three shoots to actually understand what this reticle is doing for me and when I need to actually dial because I dial with this reticle. I don't just yeah. hold. The problem with dialing though is the wind dots change. The wind dots change, but if you look at your dope and let's say I'm shooting a thousand yards, so I'm at 6.4. I can look at the 6.4 line and go, okay, 10, 10 miles an hour will, will put me on my second and, and dot. He, and here's my other bitch about the dots is that they're set for a bullet with a 0.4 BC, mm -hmm. G1, and we're not using that. Right. And this was like a military shooting a 175, you know, 0. 0.496. 
And that's what those wind dots were designed around. And they can then translate to like a 300 wind mag as well. But we're using stuff that's in the 0.5, high 0.5s, 0.6s. We'd need a six mile, six mile an hour dot, not a four. Right. That would be my... Yeah, so, you, so you jump that up. Yeah. Right? So I can get a just about here. So let's say it's a six mile an hour dot. So that means this guy's 12. So I put my 12 and I say that's 1.2. I can go up to my hold line and go 1.2 mm -hmm. and pull the trigger. And I'll be relatively close. I'm a horse hater. So you're just going to have to... And I work and for... Frank and I aren't going to agree on no, everything. I, I'm not going to agree on everything. It's just... It, it is what it is. Because, you know, I've known them a long, long time. And... and I, I know I know where the skeletons are in the closet, and sure. I'm not a fan. But they have their purpose. They're mills. They work. There's no de debating that part. They do work. It's just a learning and a training thing. And that's where rifle setup comes up. And, again, it's what is going to work for you. What you're going to train to, what you're going to practice to is going to be your setup. That's my other bitch. Is it, is it Rex Marksmanship? Because if you're sitting there and you're set up your natural point of aim, you, your cheek weld, we just talked about setting the rifle up. Mm -hmm. Okay, I got everything set up to me. Now, you're going to hold a thousand yard shot. These guys are going to hold their shot. So they got to go down to say eight mils. Now they're at the very if bottom. If you're shooting a, a 308, you're at 12 and you've right. lost all your wind dots. You lost everything and you got to back the scope off and you're... I, we, we did one when you're kind of holding at the very bottom of your scope reticle. If the shot goes low, you're going to miss it. As well, you're going to compromise your cheek weld to look that low in the reticle. I like to be in the middle. The edges are the weak spot of scopes. There's, there's, um, there's distortion. There's blurring. There's all different problems around the edges of a scope. Some scope companies put in a, um, like a, I don't know what you even describe it, but it, it, it's like a block. So what it does is it cuts the edges away so you can't see all the way to the edge of the glass to kind of take some of that distortion out. So they'll, they'll bring the field of view in a little bit to keep the edges a little crispier than if you were all the way to the end of the glass. It's kind of like a fishbowl. Right. So to me, that's why I'm not a fan of holding that far. I'd rather you dialed as much as you could. Now, don't get me wrong. I've used it. I've taught it. I've trained on it. it I got it. But to me, it compromises your cheek weld to hold that low on a reticle. And that's why I'm saying... Especially the farther you go. everything. Right. The further you go, yeah, that's, that's, that's what I was and like. That's I was using a 308. The further you go is more critical. I was holding 12 and mm -hmm. I and like had to power down. I don't like doing that. I don't like powering down. I like as much power as possible. And I was shooting and I was making a guesstimation of where my wind is going to be. Because there's no wind dots down there. And that's why, I, you know, like, yeah. I, it took me three or four times using this scope to say, okay, this is how I can make it effective for me. So outside of 600 yards, am I holding? Not really. I'm mm -hmm. going to go straight for my dial and I'm going to look it's at my dope. Man. Yep. Holding was meant for your personal danger space, which is about 600 meters with artillery. And so you were meant to hold and do snapshots 600 and in. That's where holding was meant to be. And, and that's where your snapshots and your military kind of application comes from. After that, your distance is more critical. Your you, distance should give you time and opportunity. Sure. So you should line up the shot. So that's kind of why I'm not an advocate of holding that far away. Now, where it does help is if you're shooting ELR kind of stuff and you don't have enough elevation in your scope, yeah, well, you then go. you're going to supplement it that way. And, but, and a little math is involved. There. Yeah, then take your take your time, line up the shot. 
But think about that. I mean, think about high priority, low priority, you know, uh, 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 where that target falls in that, and that determines what you're going to do. So the one, but it's, that, it's personal preference. That's exactly what we're saying. Yeah. And Frank's going to have different stuff on his gun. I'm going to have different stuff on my gun and you guys are going to have different stuff on your gun. The only thing that we can do is guide you in a direction that's going to help you understand, hurt you. Right. Understand the pros and cons of everything. I, I mean, I, I like the vortex radicals. I like the Schmidt radicals. I like night forces radicals. So each one has a pro and con and understand where that pro and con lies. And most importantly to you guys, each one has a price point. Yes. So when you're looking at the Schmitz right now, uh, for the reticles that we've been talking about, a P4, you're looking at $23.95. For an H2 CMR, you're looking at $28.95. For a Tremor 3 and 5 to 25, you're looking about $3,400. And for a 7 to 35, which is their new one, I really like the 7 to 35 yeah, model. It. Not necessarily the, the Tremor, but I like the, mm -hmm. the Mill C, and I think they have a new reticle coming out now where they took the, the Mill C. Yeah, right, they right. took the Mill C and made it more of a horse style, which is mm -hmm. which is cool. Um, but those 7 to 35s have is the same amount of adjustment as the 5 to 25. Yes. Yeah. And that is huge because when you looked at the when you looked at the Schmidt 3 to 27, you started losing adjustment there and you're mm -hmm. only gaining two power. No, for sure. And but the only thing is the cost goes up quite a bit. The $500 cost, up on a 7 to 35. Exactly. It goes up um, not only because of the extra power that you're getting but your reticle selection. And, and that, and there's a lot that goes into that scope to give you that much adjustability. The higher magnification scopes usually have less adjustability. So that's, that's what I'm saying. This is a big deal. Yeah. Yeah. Um, looking at your vortex, a, a very uh, popular reticle is the EBR2C. It gives you that same Christmas tree style reticle. And, but it's simple. It's simplified, mm -hmm. I think. Yep. And it's not super busy. You don't have a bunch of wind dots. You just have lines and estimations. But again, we're looking at these big areas between, you know, you got your half mil, then your full mil, and there's nothing in between there for me. Right, right. And to me, that's fine because I want to see what I'm doing. So I can break up the half mil into, two ten into one tenth. And so I like that to me where I don't like the two tenths. I don't need my hand held that much. And I'd rather kind of just play with it. What I do a lot is I'll measure a target before I start shooting it. So I'll know where my fudge zone is. So if a target is... You can kind of bracket that yes, shot. If it's a 0.8 width, well, I know I can go three quarters of a mil with wind and things like that, and I can still take up that target. So I'm looking at target size when I'm looking at my reticles and stuff. And so sure. I'll immediately kind of flash up on it and mill it and say, okay, that, that target's 0.8. So... I need to make bold corrections more than I, you know, smaller. But now you get to like uh, Pawnee; those targets are tiny as shit. That P4, <laughs> um, that 12 power P4 I had covered that 820 yard target and covered almost all of those 300 yard targets. And when we're talking about tactical shooting, too, Frank kind of touched on it. Is when you're making those adjustments and you're holding that wind. And you make your scientific wild-ass guess on what you're going to do from target to target. Obviously, you know, you're going from a 200 target to a 400 target. You want to hold a little more wind. But you're taking that, that guesswork and that predictability of what your gun is actually going to do. And you're going, okay, I'm going to take this part of my reticle where I know it's probably going to be center. And I'm going to favor one side of the yep. plate. That way I have more room for adjustment and more room for fudge. And... 
I can, if I have a follow-up shot behind that, yes. I can center up that follow-up shot. When, when your targets can absorb the error factor, you want to use that to your advantage. Yep. So favor one side of the target. I, I'm not a big fan of holding center, like even at a hundred yard target, if I'm shooting at a piece of steel, I'm not going to hold center. If I feel a little bit of wind on my face on the right, yeah. I'm going to favor, favor the, a little the right bit. side. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be holding the side of the plate, but it's just going to be offset. Yeah. Hold, hold the edge of the plate, not off the plate is a common kind of theme. Okay, so uh, we talked about that. I want to get into, because uh, we're getting into that. I want to talk something that came up question-wise too uh, with barrel length. Uh, I said in some of the other podcasts that I'm going to be going shorter this year, and I've been looking at these matches over the last year. I've been looking at what I've seen in training and things like that. And for me, now this is me because I'm a smaller guy, and the way these matches run, I'm going shorter and lighter. If I'm lighter, I do better. Now, what does that mean? Well, I'm making up that difference with bullets. Real popular right now is This stuff. is good to cover. Yeah. This is like everybody's trying to maximize muzzle velocity. And they are. And how do we do that? Is is go shorter, but I'm losing. Well, they're velocity. doing the six millimeters really long and light. And what they're really doing with those six millimeters is they're taking advantage of the lack of recoil. Get your notebooks out, guys. This is really important. I got numbers stuff. here. So I six millimeter bullets, and your average one is you got your 105, 108, and 110. Um, and I have BCs for them, which is 536, 536, and 617. Respectively to those numbers. Yeah. Now everybody with the six fives wants to go heavy. So they're doing the 140, 143. And as I mentioned, I saw guys trying to jam a 147 into a 65 creep, uh 6547. It's like, no, the other way, dude. So I have some numbers here. A 120 grain is 497. Okay, not that great. But a 123 CNR is 547. So, so CNR. Yeah. When, well, it was just probably like three years ago, the Lapua CNRs, the 129s and the 260s was the shit you could 139 right right you couldn't touch anything else and all of a sudden burger has got their solution to it and but it's everybody's kind of moved away from the lapuas and the cnars and just really I'm a, focusing on the i'm burger. a cnar guy and i'll tell you why they're not jump sensitive you don't have to i do magazine length i do all these things so they load well i don't have to load long to the lands with a cnar versus the, the burger vlds so the 123 grain is right up there with a uh with any of these other six millimeters, so 123. If I'm shorter, I can go faster because it's lighter. Right. 123, I can crank to over 3,000 feet per second out of a 6.5. So I'm in that same zone with a heavier bullet with a good BC, and I can push it farther. Now I said about the 130s that I shoot, the a prime ammo. Well, a burger is 5.62 with their 130. Well, the prime. BC on the box is a 585. So I think the burger is, is, is a little bit underestimated. Well, the 130s carry out for me great. I get the 130s over 3,000 feet all the time. Now here, in, in I'm going to just throw this at you too. There is a 108.65 Cre or 108.65 bullet with a 478 BC. And who's putting that up? Uh, this might be CNR as well. So you can go a 108 and a 6.5, put more powder behind it, and get it to that 3,200 speed limit if you want. But I shoot the 136 CNR all the time. It's, it's, it's a good high BC. 
And out of my 20 inch 260, I'm getting 2,800 feet per second out of a 136. So I went shorter. I brought up my velocity by going a little bit lighter bullet. So I'm up at 2,800 where I wanna be out of a 20 inch barrel. And I got a good BC. And here's the other thing I did is I added spin. I'm not a one and eight, I'm a one and seven. Because I went shorter and I'm lowering my. I was just about my... to ask you so that we can. Yeah. It, well, these guys are building a barrel and they're going, okay, well, he hasn't set barrel twist rate yet. Right. So he's got, he's moving all this stuff. How's he moving all that stuff at one and eight? So I'm, one and eight will work. And I have short one and eights. They Do you will... feel like you're right on the edge with that one and eight? No, I'm fine with a one and eight. That's the safe spot. I'm on the edge with a one and seven, but I'm on an edge to my favor because if I want to go really heavy with a 147 grain for some silly reason, I can still do it. But it also has no problem with these other bullets shooting the 136s and the 130s. I'm not seeing a negative that way either, but my muzzle velocity is down. So because my muzzle velocity is lower, the twist makes up the difference. So here's the thing. If you go really long, you want to stay safe because your muzzle velocity is up. But if you go short, you're losing muzzle velocity, so you want to bring your twist up a little bit. You can go 7.5, you can go 8. That all's still in the safe zone, but I kind of went the 7 because they had them um, and Bartland Barrels in the 7. So we've thrown a lot of numbers at you guys. I just want to clarify a couple things. So Frank was talking about the 3,200 speed limit. So the 3,200 speed limit is what you're looking at in a competitive match. Mm -hmm. So they limit you to 3,200 feet per second. So if you're trying to get to that point, this is the information that Frank is giving you. Now you guys right. can go out there and jam as Everybody's much freaking powder in there as you want and shoot 5,000 feet per second. But if you're looking at competition shooting and tactical shooting, and you know people are measuring these things and they're saying, okay, your speed limit needs to be 3,200 feet per second. Not only does it make it competitive for everybody out there, but it also doesn't, saves on the steel. It doesn't wreck the steel. And like I said, at the six millimeters, most are, most are in that 3050 to 3150 speed zone with those really light bullets. Well, if you go lighter with a 6.5, you can come right back into that speed zone. But now here's the game changer bullets, and I want to let you know on this. Nozzler RDF, okay? In the 223, the 85 grain Nozzler is a 498. Super good BC. Yeah. Remember what I was saying with that? 223, no recoil, less money. You got a four, uh, a 498 BC out of that bullet. This is the most excited I've seen you so yeah, far. Yeah, yeah. These are good. I lean chair. forward to read. I'm, I'm in it. <laughs> 105s in the 6 millimeter are 571. Compared that to the 536. And then in the 130 grain Nosler, 65 caliber. You're at 615. So a burger is a 58, a 62. A nozzler is a 615. You can smoke a 130 to 30 to 3,000 feet per second out of a shorter barrel, and you got the BC to back it up. So you're doing everything the Dasher guys are doing without the effort, and you're going to have a little bit more barrel life and everything's going to be good because you're not cranking more powder or anything like that. You're just lightening the bullet and speeding it up. Yeah, it's more slippery. Yes. So when we're talking about barrel length, when I started shooting this style of shooting, I was shooting a 243. You guys heard me say that a million times. With a 26-inch barrel mm -hmm. running a 105 burger. 
Yeah. So as we start chopping inches off the barrel, is it fair to say that you're losing about 20, 10 to 20. 20 it depends on yeah, the powder in the barrel per second yeah. per inch. So, Pretty close. So we're getting, you know, we're, we're starting to take more and more off that barrel. And I, and I think you even have an 18 and a half inch 6.5. Yep. And you, what was that further shot that you took? We were while watching well, I've the taken, video. I've taken it to 14.15, but I have 12.50 is the video I did. I got 8 out of 10 hits at 12.50, I think it was. So it's possible, guys. Yes. It's possible. Don't, don't believe the hype when it's like, oh, well, you can only go this short to stabilize this and, and, and do that. That If you find the correct combination, and what we're saying is that barrel twist with the, with the proper bullet, Go the lighter, are not unlimited. heavier. Now, don't get me wrong. If you're a big guy and you can handle your rifle to be 26 inches and weigh 17 pounds and you're still a top 10 PRS shooter, don't change anything. You're good. Yeah, but if you're that. a guy who's kind of trying to find his way and you're not, you know, you're not exercising, you're not a CrossFit freak and, and all these things, well, then a little lighter is going to help you because you're not going to be having to worry about mass and momentum. You're going to be able to move stages plus the bullet leaves quicker. That's the other trick they're doing with the six millimeters. The bullet is out so fast that they're able to transition and move in in in, in a. I mean, they're they're it's split in times. They're they're doing NASCAR, you know, hundredths of a second split in times, and and that's kind of what you're looking at. But look at the BCs of these lighter bullets. They're not bad, and you can make up. BCs are speed dependent. Where the 140s and the 143s and 47s might drop your speed into the 26 zone, 2,600 feet per second, you can come right back with a 123s to the 28s and 29s. And now you got speed again. And speed kills, man. Don't let anybody fool you. I want to talk about accuracy here for a second. Mm -hmm. We've been talking about chassis. We've been talking about uh, like Manners rifle stocks. <clears throat> How is that gaining accuracy to a gun? So we're pulling it out of a Remington stock that we just bought off the shelf, and we're putting it into a chassis. Bedding consistency. So the bedding consistency. And, and, so you know all that stuff. So where you have, and you guys can look this up, or a B block style bed, mm -hmm. where it's an aluminum chassis, and you're actually crushing that metal down with the steel from from your action. Yep. So that everything is connected. So. When I'm when I'm talking Kadex about with the roller block with the roller block, so you want you want full connection on the bottom of your action. So with Accuracy International, they have a flat bottom action, right? And they slap it into a flat top chassis, and it's glued and screwed into place. That way, there's minimal movement. It allows more it's, accuracy. It's not round on square. It's not exactly. It's not round on square. So when you look at your Remington actions, um, look at the bottom of that action is rounded. So this that's where why, stocks and bedding help. This is why people are bedding is because they want that full connection all the way up to that recoil lug mm -hmm. so that you can gain accuracy. Yes. It's not flopping around in there. It's this consistent. Is why, it's, this is why people are blueprinting their actions. When they go to change their barrel, you want to make sure – you, you might square. as well blueprint it. It's already a part. Make sure – when they say blueprinting, it's to the original blueprint of – the Remington 700, what it was supposed to be. And they square them up and make sure the threads are good and all that. So uh, An easy way for me to tell if something's been squared up or blueprinted is you can see it in the recoil lug. There's mm -hmm. typically a fatter recoil lug on those, those actions that have been tuned. So if you're buying a gun from somebody off arms list or 
eBay or something like that. That's that's a simple thing to look for. If they tell you it's it's been blueprinted, look for that lug. I I was just talking about this um, with the Magpul guys when I went up to Magpul with their new stock. All my old gaps that were in stocks have a recoil lug too big for any of these chassis. They don't fit in any chassis because they're giant monster badger tub type uh, recoil lugs. And they were meant for these stocks and they were bigger embedded in there. And now when you transition to a chassis, they don't fit. So right. there's something and to look at. A lot of that stuff is just made for drop-in. Just that, that Remington 700 bought off the shelf drop-in the chassis. With Accuracy International, going back to them, they have increased the size of their recoil lug space so that you can fit custom actions into it. Yes. And it's not um, – you don't have to machine it out. Right, right. So all all good, really good stuff, man. Um we're, God, we're running into our hour already. This is kind of crazy. We'll, we'll have to kind of uh, save some of this other stuff for a part two. Maybe we'll we'll film we'll, we'll record a part two here for you guys. But um, hey, this is great. Ask us questions on the Facebook page. Make sure you guys head over to Everyday Sniper on Facebook. Podbean, they got the app. Make sure you talk to Podbean with the app. It works really good. Majority of you guys are watching this on Podbean. Uh, Thanks for subscribers. Again, Sniper's Hide is down for the weekend. Uh, we'll be back up with new software. Everything's going forward, so all that good stuff. You can also find us on the Mile High Training Detachment, Mile High Shooting Accessories, Sniper's Hide Facebook, and the Everyday Sniper Facebook. I try to update that and answer questions as fast as possible. Frank is on there, too. He's a busy man. Uh, he's still very, very big in social media, so him and I are just kind of tag-teaming these questions and trying to help you guys out. Um, Please share with your friends. Yeah, share, share with it. your friends. If you guys like the podcast, cool. We appreciate all the positive feedback that's come in. Uh, we're the only negative stuff that I've heard so far is just the the volume, uh, the volume issues that we have with the microphones. But we're gonna. I'm gonna fix be. Work, that I'm learning this. I'm learning the software. We're so. learning as we go. So. And if you guys have anything that uh, that can help us out, you want to see something going on. Hopefully, we answered those questions that we had PM to us. Um, that's all I got. Thank you guys for listening, Frank. Thank you, Thank and you. I'll see you at SHOT Show. Yeah, booth 7502. Come check us out.